0: Our topic for this session is sodomy, also called homosexuality and by other names. To establish what the Bible says first about the way that sexual relationships should be, let's go to the book of Genesis and see a couple of passages where God establishes this doctrine of marriage between a man and a woman, and then we will proceed to discuss and show what the Bible says specifically about sodomy. That is, when a man is with a man or and a woman is with a woman instead of a man with a woman. The first is Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, we'll read verse 27. Genesis 1:27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, He created them. This passage teaches us that on the sixth day of creation, God created man in his own image. He did not create the animals, the trees, the rocks, the dirt, the water in his image. He created man in his image. And man is specifically defined here as male and female. He created them. When we say man or mankind, we are talking about male and female among humans. We're not talking about animals or any other part of creation. We're not even talking about angels. We're talking about humans, a male and a female. This is uh, who was created in the image of God, Genesis 1, 27. That's on the sixth day. Then chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Genesis 2, 18 to 25. On the sixth day of creation, after God made the animals and after God made the man, that is, Adam, the first man, he created the woman on the sixth day of creation. Genesis 2:18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle, and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. On the sixth day of creation, after the creation of Adam, the first man, and the creation of the animals, God announces that it's not good for the man to be alone in The sense that he's with animals and other parts of creation are there, he's not alone in that sense. But he is alone in the sense that he does not have a helper suitable for him. He does not have a corresponding female among humans. He's the only human, a male. And therefore, when God says that it's not good for him to be alone, he does not intend for the man to join with an animal or the man to join with a tree, or the man to join with the rock, or the man to join with a robot. Nothing like that, but with a woman, a human woman. And this is why he brought all these animals before him. We see in verse 20, But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. None was found among them. And God made Adam realize that that was the case. Become acutely aware that he needed a corresponding woman to him being the man. That he actually needed that. And not only for Adam's sake was this written, but it was written for our sake. Right. We know this from various other scriptures, that whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. We learn this from First 1 Corinthians 10.6 and 10.11, that whatever was written in the Old Testament, whether good or evil, was written for our benefit. As well, Romans 15.4 says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So, this is recorded not just to explain how God did it with Adam and Eve, but also how God does it with all of us. And how this establishes the foundation on how human societies should exist. And we also read that it was God who brought the woman to the man. He brought the woman to the man to make sure that the man knew and understood that it is God who supplies the woman for him. God is the one who appoints and supplies her for him. Verse 22, he brought her to the man. And then the man, it's not as though the man is so robotic, uh, so numbed by what has happened, that he doesn't realize and does not accept it. He joyfully accepts it. Verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The man knows the origin of the woman, and the man knows how good it is because she is just like he is. They are both humans, and he's glad and happy about it. And then verse 24 sets a, a paradigm for everyone else. For this cause, or this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the reason. The way that God established it, it, it is in this way that a man leaves his father and his mother. He's raised by them. He becomes old enough to leave them. He leaves them in order to cleave to his wife, to join with his wife, and they, then they become one flesh. In the marital union, they are one flesh. And this we will see, Jesus, uh, he cites this passage in order to assert that what God has put together in this way, let no man separate. So there should be no, viola- no violation whatsoever of what God does here. And verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed because there's no sin. There's no sin yet, so there's no shame in the world. There is no evil and no death. This is why they are together in innocence in this manner. We also see in verse 24 that this assumes that every man has a father and mother Every man and every woman, they have a father and a mother, starting from Adam and Eve. Not two fathers and not two mothers, not one father and three mothers, and not three mothers and six fathers, nothing like that, no mixing and matching, it's one father and one mother. This is the way children ought to be raised until they are ready to establish their own household by marriage and by uh, having children from the marriage. Now, this was written, Genesis was written, as well as all the books, the first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, all the books of the law were written by Moses, the man of God, the prophet of God, appointed and called by God to write these books. We know that Moses wrote this because of Luke twenty-four, twenty-five to 27, where Jesus begins with Moses and explains to the disciples all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. It says he began with Moses, which certainly means he began in the book of Genesis, because there are many messianic prophecies in the book of Genesis. Thereby we establish that Moses, a holy man, a prophet of God, called and appointed by God to write these words, he wrote them. And we also know from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, that These words in the Old Testament were written by the spirit of Christ in the prophets, the spirit of Christ in the prophets, so that the words of the Old Testament, including the book of Genesis, are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. This is the the teaching of the Bible. Now, to further vindicate and corroborate the validity of the book of Genesis, let's turn to Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus, our Lord, establishes the truthfulness of these passages we just read. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. Matthew 19, 3 to 6. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees come in order to test Christ. They come maliciously and they present a dilemma to him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all, for any reason at all? Verse 4, his answer begins with, have you not read? Have you not read? That is a rebuke to the Pharisees, to the questioners, because the questioners should have already read. And once they read, it should be plain and clear and obvious to them that what God is teaching us is, in fact, that a man marries a woman and stays married for the rest of his life to that woman. This is the way it should be, and they should not be seeking divorce. So, this is the way it should be. Have you not read? Many of the teachings of the Bible are this clear. They are this clear, and they become unclear to the person who's looking for a way out who's looking for an excuse, who's looking for a way to justify his own sin and disobedience, looking for a way to palliate his own conscience so that he doesn't feel that prick. He doesn't want the the feeling of guilt in his conscience, so he finds a way to say, the Bible isn't clear. Well, I never read it, and I didn't know, know about it. The Bible is cloudy on this issue. There are many interpretations of the Bible. How can you say yours is the correct interpretation? Jesus doesn't go in that direction at all. He just throws it back on the Pharisees and says, Have you not read? Is there something wrong with you that you did not read it and then did not comprehend the obvious teaching of the Bible? Have you not read? This is the way we should approach it when people assert and try to distort the teaching of the Bible. That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. He cites Genesis 1.27, vindicating the historicity and the veracity of the book of Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 27. This is how God established it. The Lord Jesus says, this is how God established it. And also he quotes Genesis 2.24 in verse 5. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So both accounts, both chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Genesis, were written by inspiration, by the hand of Moses, guided by the Holy Spirit, Jesus our Lord asserts that what he wrote is true and valid many, many years later. The book of Genesis and the incidents in the book of Genesis happened 4,000 B.C. 4,000 B.C. So 4,000 years later, our Lord Jesus is teaching his antagonist, the Pharisees, the same truth, and saying what God did 4,000 years ago is also true now in our generation. And then the apostles wrote this, Matthew wrote this, for successive generations, for our generation. Remember, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. As well, now these things happen to them as examples for us so that we should not crave evil things as they also craved Romans 15:4 and 1 Corinthians 10:6 Let us therefore establish in in our minds be totally convinced in our minds that the Bible is very clear about these teachings and our own author, our, our only authority is the Bible by the testimony of the Lord Jesus himself Remember in Luke or excuse me Mark 8:38 Mark 8:38 Jesus challenged people who would challenge him. In Mark 8:38 he says for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Whoever claims the name of Christ, whoever says he is a Christian, a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, should not be ashamed of Christ and the words of Christ. We are reading and studying the words of Christ. There should be no shame whatsoever. In fact, the people who are opposing the words of Christ, they should be ashamed. They should be ashamed now and repent of their sins now before Christ is ashamed of them on the day of judgment when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels and at that point it's going to be too late. It'll be too late. So, let's establish our faith on the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of Christ. Turning now to our topic of sodomy or homosexuality. The Bible in Genesis chapters 18 and 19, specifically Genesis 18:1 to 19:29, records an incident that happened in the land of Canaan, primarily in the city of Sodom. But Sodom, Gomorrah, and there were two other smaller cities that were destroyed because of the sin of that place. They were destroyed because of the sin of that place. The Lord himself appeared there to Abraham and went among the people and saw exactly what was going on. And when he saw it and verified everything, he called upon the Lord in heaven. That is the Lord Jesus on the earth called upon the Lord in heaven, the God, the father, in order for God, the father to rain fire and brimstone out of heaven and onto those people for their unrepentant sin of sodomy. We derive our word. It's a biblical word and a legal word, a legal word in the laws of the United States and various other countries, not just here, but in various other countries for centuries. The word to describe a man with a man is sodomy, and the person is called a sodomite. We have to establish that fact, that we must use correct terms. If we do not use correct terminology in any debate, we will lose that debate. We will lose that debate, because with the terminology comes assumptions. With terminology comes assumptions. For example, if someone were to ask you, let's say the men among us, if someone were to ask you, when did you stop beating your wife? When did you stop beating your wife? That question has an assumption that the man that he's addressing has indeed beaten his wife. He has practiced doing that. And so the question is not whether you have done it. The question is, when did you stop doing it? But the question is wrong at the, at the outset, is it not? Why should we assume that the average man who is married beats his wife? That's not necessarily the case. That might be the case, but it's not necessarily the case. So you can't, just can't approach any man and say, when did you stop beating your wife? Because the assumption is wrong. So, with our topic here, why in the world should we call sodomites gay? They have actually hijacked that good word. The word gay means happy. It means happy or joyful. So if it means happy or joyful, why in the world would we take a word like that and assign it to a wicked, devilish, immoral behavior that the Bible condemns and says people who practice that go to hell? Those people are not happy. They might be temporarily happy in terms of having their thrills fulfilled and having some kind of uh, outlet for their passions. They're temporarily happy, but they're not truly happy. And in fact, research shows that those people are some of the most miserable people in the whole world. And they have a high rate of suicide. They have short lifespans. Research shows all this. They're not happy people. They claim to be happy, and they present it as a slick and sleazy salesman. This is how they present it. When people use wrong terminology to convince their hearers of something, they will use wrong terminology to dupe the hearers so that the hearer succumbs to what the speaker is saying. That's what happens with salesmen. Corrupt salesmen, sneaky salesmen. When a salesman is approaching you with something, he will uh, prop up the product and he will say things about it that are not necessarily true, that are exaggerations, that are distortions, because he's trying to convince you, the corrupt one will, trying to convince you that the product is 100 times better than you really know it to be, and everybody else knows it to be. He's trying to do that so he can dupe you and, and, and make you succumb to his pressures and you dish out the money, pay him, and then walk away, and then he's going to be happy, say, I, I, I fooled those, those uh, crazy people, and then you walk away sad, not realizing what just happened to you sometimes if you don't have self-control. So this is what happens, and this is what happens in the culture. The devil has done this from the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, he's always using, the devil is always using biblical words with an unbiblical meaning and he's also using common words with an uncommon meaning. Biblical words with an unbiblical meaning and common words with an uncommon meaning so that he practices sleight of hand, he fools you, he tricks you into thinking that something is good when it's really evil. Let's not have that happen to us. Let's practice some discernment, some restraint some use of the mind, some logic, some evidence, some biblical evidence. Let's pursue that and not let the culture and the pressures around us and the terminology of the people fool us into thinking something is better than what it really is. So, examples of this in the Bible and how it is sin. Firstly, let me show you from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 22 that this is in fact a, a word used in the Bible, First Kings chapter twenty-two and verse forty-six. First Kings twenty-two forty-six. Speaking of a righteous king, Jehoshaphat, it says, "And the remnant of the sodomites who remained in the days of his father Asa, he ex- expelled from the land. There were some." Sodomites who still remained in the day of his father, Asa, who was also a good king. And however they remained, it doesn't explain, but Jehoshaphat found them out and he expelled them from the land. He got rid of them from the country. Here it clearly teaches and, and says the term sodomites. This is not my term, I did not translate the New American Standard Bible which was translated in the 1970s and later updated in 1995. I did not translate it. The translators translated it with this term because it's a standard term and it's a biblical term. Even the King James Version uses the term sodomite when it was translated in 1611. So it is a biblical term. Let's call things what the Bible calls them, not what the world calls them But what the Bible calls them. Next, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we'll read verses 26 and 27. Romans 1 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and, this, and in the same way also, the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The Apostle Paul describes the wickedness of the world, the wickedness that many of us also have also committed before our conversion. He's describing common sins in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. He describes various sins. At this point, he's describing the sin of sodomy without using the word, without using that word or without using the word homosexual or anything else. This is an important passage because opponents of the biblical position will say, well, you know, the word homosexual doesn't mean what you think it means. Greek scholars have discovered that it doesn't mean homosexual, it means something else. And they dilute and twist the true meaning of the words. For one, they can't do that with the Greek text. They can't do that with Greek terminology because Greek lexicons or Greek dictionaries, there, there are standard dictionaries, and they have not adjusted the meaning of these words. The scholars, some of them believe in the Bible, some of them do not believe in the Bible, but to the extent that they are scholars, they're just telling us the real meaning of these Greek words that existed 2,000 years ago in the writing period of the New Testament. They're telling us what those words meant at the time. So Paul and, and others who use this word, they're using this word in the sense of a homosexual or a sodomite in the way that we use the word. It doesn't have any other meaning, any other softened meaning or any other context. That's the meaning. However, tell your friends, this passage describes sodomy without using the word, which is important, right? It's important not only to define the word, but also to describe the action so we know clearly what we're talking about. This passage clearly tells us what we're talking about. And it says... In verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. He's describing not fruitful, not godly passions, but degrading passions. These are degenerate passions. These are corrupt passions. These are not exalting passions or honorable passions. They are degrading passions. And what does he say first? 26, for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. The women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. The women, they should know better, but they don't do better. Women go after other women. And verse 27. And in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The men also give up on the women and chase after other men. And it says there, they burned in their desire towards one another. That doesn't sound too good. Verse 27 also says that they are committing indecent acts. Not decent acts, but indecent acts. Lewd acts. Reprehensible acts. This is what they're committing. Indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. There is a punishment for what they're doing. They're not being rewarded. They're not being blessed. They're not being commended. They are being punished. There is a due penalty. It's a due penalty. Not an undue, an unjust penalty, but a due penalty of their error. They're not walking on the straight path. They are on an erroneous path, an erroneous path that leads to destruction. From this passage as well, we note that the term natural is used, natural and unnatural. We as Christians, we believe in the Bible. This is known as believing in biblical law. Whatever laws, commandments, rules, injunctions are in the Bible, we believe them, and that's known as biblical law. We subscribe to biblical law. There is another kind of law that we also subscribe to, but you don't need to be a Christian to hold to it. Everybody else, all humans, hold to what's known as natural law. He's speaking here of natural law, verses 26 and 27. He says they exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Natural law is the nature of things, the way things work. There is an order, there is a proper process and step, there's a protocol. People understand that. There is common sense, there is logic, there is rationality. In the natural order of things, we do not find that an elephant, an elephant, let's say a male elephant, goes and chases a female eagle, or a female eagle goes and chases a male monkey. They don't get together, right? Donkeys don't come and find humans. They don't go and do that. Donkeys go after donkeys. Males and females, they come together, and they produce another donkey. This is the way it works. This is the natural order of things. And we, having the image of God, we have a rationality, Jude 10 and 2 Peter 2.12. We have a rationality that the animals do not have. The animals do that by instinct. We have, in addition to instinct, we have a mind. We have rational capabilities. We have the image of God endowed within us so that we know the difference and we can speak up and tell people the difference. We have the ability to practice restraint, self-control, and direct our passions, whereas animals do not have that. We have that. This is why the apostle says here, they exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Another aspect of natural law is how people of other religions, other countries, other languages, not in Christianity alone, people in other religions, in other countries, in other languages, they know this too. And how do they know it? Because they have a conscience just like we have a conscience. Romans chapter 2 verses 1 to 16 explains how everybody has a conscience and God has given everybody a, in that conscience the ability to know the difference between right and wrong and when he does wrong to have that conscience pricked to have that conscience challenged to have grief in the conscience knowing that he has done wrong it doesn't take biblical knowledge for a person in the Hindu religion in the Islamic religion or even in the atheistic religion to know that if a man steals from another man, that the stealer is in the wrong. Right? Everybody knows that, and there are laws in all kinds of countries against theft. Why? Because of natural law. People know that it's wrong to do that. That's the argument the apostle is using right here in Romans 1:26 to 27. So when we speak to others, we can speak to them on two grounds. Biblical law... And natural law. They can't deny the two of them. They cannot. Next, we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul, in verse nine, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Here, too, we have a question. Like Jesus says, have you not read? Did you never read in the Scriptures? Paul says, do you not know? Why don't you know? It should be obvious. It should be obvious from natural law and biblical law that these things I'm about to tell you are true. So why do I have to tell you again? Why do I have to remind you? Do you not know? And if you do know, why aren't you acting upon it? He says that these people are unrighteous meaning that they contradict and transgress the law of God. The unrighteous or wicked people are those who transgress the commandments of God. He says the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Right there. He repeats that in verse 10. Kingdom of God in verses 9 and 10, he says, they shall not inherit. Well, here is a very explicit and potent statement. People say, well, I can practice this or that sin, whether we call it sin or not. I can practice it. I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do it anyways. And I'm still a Christian and I'm going to heaven. I'm still a child of God. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. Jesus died for my sins. We're saved by grace. It's all of grace. Grace, grace, grace. Love, love, love. They say that and they think they're off the hook because they said the word. They say they they are Christians. But here it says... They shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Who inherits? But a son, a true son, a true child of God inherits. Not false sons, they don't inherit. In fact, inheritances are taken away from false sons and given to a true son. And even to a slave who behaves like a true son. Throughout history and in the Bible. Inheritances are given to true children, not to false ones. Here, he says, there is no entrance into the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter. You might think you are a child of God, but if you are practicing these sins, you're not going to heaven. There is no kingdom of God for you. He then says in verse 9, do not be deceived. It's easy for us to be self-deceived and to let other people deceive us. So he's warning us, do not be deceived. Don't let that happen to you. Don't think that fornicators, those who practice sexual immorality, especially those who practice premarital illicit sex, this is wrong according to the Bible. Fornicators are included as unrighteous people. So if they claim to be righteous, they can't be because their actions betray their words, right? They contradict their words. Nor idolaters... No one who bows down before idols, no one who loves idols goes to heaven. Kingdom of God. Adulterers. If a man or a woman is married and has sexual relations with somebody outside of the marital relationship, that person is an adulterer. There's another term. Let's not say, oh, they just had an affair. 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 I thought affair meant activity or something like that. Well, why are we now calling adultery an affair? Let's call it adultery. It has to sting. If it doesn't sting, then people won't wake up. They won't know that it's an affront to God if you call it by something that it's not. The effeminate and homosexuals, he says in verse 9. Effeminate, according to the New American Standard, and the homosexuals, these are the two partners in a homosexual relationship. These are the two. One who's active and the other who is passive, effeminate, and the homosexuals. These are also people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And as I said, I challenge anyone to bring up a Greek dictionary, a Greek lexicon, a standard lexicon of the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, where they say All these years we were wrong on our definition of homosexual. We were wrong and now we admit it. There is no such dictionary. There is no such dictionary. But this is what false teachers do who try to excuse this sin. What do they do? They do according to 2 Timothy 2.14. Do not wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. People love to wrangle about words. They love to uh, distort, dilute, twist the meaning of words that have a self-evident meaning and make you think it means something else when it actually means whatever the plain and obvious contextual meaning is. So don't let them wrangle about words on that. And also notice in verse 10, thieves, covetous people, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. He has a sample list of sins. These are known as sin lists or vice lists in the Bible. Sometimes there are vice lists, sometimes there are virtue lists, and sometimes they are set side by side so that we can have a clear contrast between the one and the other. In this case, we happen to have a vice list. And he says, any of these people, we're not trying to single out one sin, the homosexual sin. We're only focusing on that sin right now because our culture, especially Hollywood and New York, The New York Times and Washington, D.C., our politicians, they have rammed this issue down our throats day after day. In movies, on the Internet, in laws, in all kinds of ways, they have rammed it down our throat. That's why we're talking about it. We're not trying to pick on any one group. We're talking about it because they have made it an issue. We have not made it an issue. They have. The Bible is clear. Anybody who practices any sin shall not inherit the kingdom of God. However, we note in verse 11 that repentance is possible, and such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, justified in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Here, he holds out hope for repentance for forgiveness of sins. Luke 24, 46, and 47. The gospel includes repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Nobody is forgiven automatically. Nobody is forgiven just because he says he's a Christian. Nobody is forgiven whether or not he knows Christ. There is no automatic forgiveness. Right. Forgiveness is hinged upon repentance. Luke 17, 3-4. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. There we go. If he repents, forgive him. Forgiveness happens on the basis of Repentance. And even in Ephesians 4.32, when the apostle says, he says we should forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive you? When we repented of our sins. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.14. So here too, some of the Corinthians were made aware of their sin and turned away from their sin. They repented and they were forgiven, as verse 11 describes. This shows us that when homosexuals say, well, listen, why are you on, on top of me? Why are you pursuing this with me? Because God made me this way. This is who I am. I was born this way. So why are you picking on me? According to this passage and other passages, no. No people aren't born that way. God does not make people that way in order for them to stay in that sin. That is not true whatsoever. If they are going to be legitimized like this and say, well, God made me that way, that's the way I am from birth. Well, what's to stop somebody else from saying, well, God made me an adulterer. So I'm going to have adultery with as many women as I want. Or what if somebody else says, God made me a child molester, so I'm going to molest as many children as I want and don't have any laws against it. God made me a thief. I love money and I love millions. So when I go and rob a bank and rob $10 million from the bank, no law should pursue me and nobody should put handcuffs on me and throw me into prison and drag me before the tribunal. No. You should legalize robbery. Let's legalize kidnapping. Let's legalize that. No, this is absurd. All of this is absurd. Anybody who is wrapping his mind honestly, objectively, with the Bible and the facts of the Bible and the facts of the reality of what's happening all around us in the world cannot come to that conclusion. I was born that way? Absolutely not. We were born to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. First Corinthians 1031. So whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, let us do to the glory of God, not to spite God and not to dishonor him, but to glorify him. And we honor him when we live according to the gospel of God, which takes us to first Timothy, 1 Timothy, chapter 1. 1 Timothy, chapter one, verses eight to 11, 1 Timothy one, eight to 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men, and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." The apostle says that these laws of God are given for one purpose, and one purpose is, among the purposes, one of them is to reveal who the righteous people are and the unrighteous, to have some contrast, to know who the lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, uh, killers of father and mother, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, and perjurers. For us to know that God disdains and God loathes, people who practice those sins. That's why it's there. We see here in verse 10, he mentions homosexuals. This is contrary to the laws of God. It's contrary to being a righteous man. It is being a wicked man to practice homosexuality. And in verse 11, he says, all of this, if we practice those things, are contrary to sound teaching, verse 10 and 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. People like to say, I believe in the gospel and I'm a homosexual Christian or a Christian homosexual. That's that's who I am. Don't judge me. And that's the way they talk. But this says, this passage says, that all of these sins are contrary to sound teaching, so it's unsound or unhealthy teaching, because it's spiritual poison, it's spiritually destructive, so it's contrary to sound teaching, and the sound teaching is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. So anybody who says he subscribes to the gospel of Christ, that is sound teaching, and sound teaching does not teach that you can be lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinner, holy, un- unholy, profane, a murderer, a kidnapper, a homosexual, a liar, a perjurer, you cannot do that and claim Christianity and the gospel at the same time. Right. It's impossible. This passage clearly announces. And if you can be a homosexual Christian and you can have your clubs and groups and organizations and raise money and put political pressure on politicians and even on pastors to uh, to influence them according to these sins if you can do so for homosexuality and say that it's valid biblically speaking then let's do the same with kidnappers, liars perjurers and everyone else mentioned in this let's have an organization of Christian kidnappers, let's lobby in Washington D.C. and allow the politicians to allow us to have laws legalizing kidnapping let's do that it's in the same list. Let's do the same with lying. Let's do the same thing with perjury. Let's get, a, get rid of all the oaths. All the oaths that, are, that take place in courts of law across our land. Let's get rid of every single one of them. All of these promises in the oaths to swear to tell the truth. Because that's perjury, right? When you don't tell the truth in a court of law after you have sweared an oath to tell the truth. Let's get rid of that. Because the Bible supports... Christian perjurers. So stop, um, uh, stop disallowing this to be legal. Let's legalize perjury. Let's do that. This is absurd, is it not? Is it not absurd to think that way? That's what they have to do. They literally have to. Homosexuals literally have to play intellectual and biblical gymnastics in order to circumvent these clear passages, and there's more than one of them. All we need is one, but we have more than one. Let's also turn to Jude 7. Jude 7. Jude explains in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of of eternal fire. Jude, just as many of the prophets, and even Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, 20 to 24, they mention the city of Sodom as an example. They mention the city of Sodom. Here, Jude says that the people of Sodom, that they indulged in gross immorality. Anything that we do contrary to the Bible is sin. But here he's calling sodomy gross immorality. It's a bigger sin than other sins. He's not comparing all the sins in this verse, of course, but he understands that there is a difference, that every sin does not have the same gravity. Example, John 19.11. Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, a pagan Roman official, a governmental official, and he says... He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Who were the people who delivered Jesus over to Pilate? The Jews, Judas Iscariot. They were the ones who knew better, who knew the laws of God in the Bible, and they contradicted and transgressed those laws nonetheless. And they deliver Jesus over to Pilate. Pilate is a Roman official. Oh, he wants everybody to, to get along with each other, and he wants the tax flow to keep coming in. He doesn't want any kind of death, and he doesn't want his superiors in Rome to saying that he doesn't know what he's doing over there in that little place of Judea, so we need to get rid of him so we can have peace out there in the outskirts of the Roman Empire. That's what's on his mind And so Jesus says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Even Jesus said words like this, that it's more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, the cities that witness Jesus and his miracles will be more severely judged than the cities of Tyre and Sidon where Jesus did not go to preach though they were pagans and unbelievers too. This judgment is more severe for the cities that should know better. So in this way too, Sodom commits gross immorality and they went after strange flesh. He says strange flesh because it should be a man with his wife. That's why he's calling it strange flesh. And they are exhibited as an example. Here again we have the Bible saying that whatever was written before is recorded here for us so that we might know the difference between good and evil, righteousness and wickedness, light and darkness, the way of God and the way of the devil. These are examples. And also he says, they underwent the punishment of eternal fire. When God used fire and brimstone to kill them physically and miraculously, that fire was a metaphor and an illustration of eternal fire, the punishment of eternal fire in the lake of fire, in hell. When those things happen to wicked people now, God uses that as a token, an example for us, so that we might take warning from that and know that there is fire that awaits all who refuse repentance. Second Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. We may say, wow, but so many people don't agree with this, and I'm alone, or there's only two of us around here, or three of us, or ten of us, but all the other people all around, they don't agree with this. They don't believe this. Let's see from Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter 2, verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. The apostle Peter describes Sodom and Gomorrah, and he again says that this is an example of, To those who would live ungodly thereafter, take warning, heed this warning, not to experience the same punishment as Sodom. And then he says that there was Lot, and he calls him righteous Lot. He calls him righteous three times in verses 7 and 8. He was a righteous man. Remember, when Abraham uh, pled with the Lord in Genesis 18 and 19, he pled with the Lord for the Lord to spare Sodom. Abraham lived in that area, but not as close as Lot did to that area. Lot lived in Sodom. Abraham lived near it, but not as near as Lot did. So Abraham's saying, why don't you spare it, Lord? What if there are 50 righteous people there? Will you destroy it? And God says, no. And they go back and forth a few times. And finally, Abraham says, what if you find 10? What if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom? Will you destroy it? And God said, no, I won't destroy it on account of the ten but he couldn't find ten. He couldn't find ten. He found Lot, but he couldn't find ten. So that's an example meant for us to understand that in every generation, it will always be the case that a few truly believe and live accordingly, whereas everybody else around us will not believe. And they deserve the judgment of God unless they repent. That's what happened to Lot. Lot. That's what also happens to us. And yet, we are righteous when we withstand. Lot was under immense pressure because of all the men around him to live that way, yet he withstood it. He fought back. He, was, he maintained a strong faith. That's why he's called righteous Lot. And he knew. Notice it says in verse 7. Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And, verse 8, while living among them, he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. This is the kind of righteous response we should have. When we see evil around us, we should be just like Lot. We should be oppressed and we should be tormented by all the evil going on around us. In Acts 17, 16, Paul the Apostle visited the city of Athens and he saw the city full of idols and people worshiping them, temples and shrines, people bowing down and worshiping images, and it says his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols, Acts 17:16. That's the response we should have. We should be tormented and we should be oppressed and we should be provoked when we see evil going on around us, but we should never succumb. We should never compromise and we should never join their camp. Exodus 23, verse two. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil. So do not follow the crowd. Follow the king of kings because we are all going to be held accountable by him on the day of judgment and when he reappears, In his second coming, we ought to be seeking to please him and to be like him. Let's be faithful to him until the very end. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.